Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. One of the things that I realized after cancer was that there was one feeling that I was consistently pushing away, or more than one. And and I said joy. Initially, joy was the one that I realized that I had been pushing away. But I was also pushing away awe. I was pushing away astonishment. And I think that many of us, if we have trauma in our history, we we don't feel safe with those emotions. But also, I think that there are some things um, in our culture, and maybe even specifically in our culture for those of us on the left, whatever that means, of where there can be an expectation for unhappiness. Um, the idea that, you know, if we're not in a constant state of grief or grieving what's happening in the world, then we're not empathetic people, we're not showing up to the world. I think there were lots of things intersecting with my lack of understanding that I wasn't actually welcoming joy. But after cancer, I I saw that. I saw it so clearly. And I learned that that joy and that awe and astonishment is, is so accessible. You know those times in life where you meet a person for the first time and there is just something about them that feels immediately different, like they're vibrating on a higher frequency. When they speak, you listen, and when you walk away, you can't stop thinking about what they said. That is how I would describe today's guest, spoken word poet and writer, Andrea Gibson who is non-binary and uses they, them pronouns. Andrea has been captivating audiences all over the world for the past two decades, and also been living bravely with stage four ovarian cancer for the past two years. Andrea's journey is one that encompasses extremes from a rural upbringing and coming to terms with their queer identity to living with extreme anxiety and panic attacks and overcoming stage fright to find their voice in spoken word poetry. Today, we get deep into discussions on how suffering can transform into a path for liberation and healing. We talk about Andrea's struggles with an incurable cancer diagnosis, the healing modalities they pursued and how self-love has led to a new acceptance of their body and identity. This episode is guaranteed to open your eyes to the sheer strength and beauty of living with an open heart, even amidst our worst struggles. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. And today about the resilience of the human spirit. So let's see. Let's see where I'm at today. Um, 
My name's Andrea. I live in Colorado with my partner and three adopted puppies. I'm a spoken word poet. I've spent most of the last 20 years traveling around the world, uh, speaking my poems out loud to audiences, often in rock clubs, um, which I know is not what people typically expect of a poetry reading. And um, in the last two years, I've been home and not on the road uh, because I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer two years ago. And so I've been still writing poems, but also diving into a lot of, a lot of prose. Andrea grew up in a small town north of the Canadian border. It was a childhood spent running through the woods, catching tadpoles, and playing basketball. It was a conservative place, or maybe just a conservative time. Regardless, not knowing any other queer people, Andrea kept their identity hidden. So being a queer kid in the 80s was... Yeah, I didn't quite know what to do with it, but I I loved the beauty of where I grew up. I loved the community of feeling. I was really involved in sports, and also some things were hard because of just being being different. And what was I think it's all adolescence and and coming of age. This search for identity and belonging. What did that look like for you? I think it looked like a lot of shame, a lot of hiding. One of the first poems I remember writing was a poem called The Mask. And and it was uh, talking, I was very young when I wrote it, but it was talking about just how much I, I felt like I could not be myself. I worried it would ruin my life and, and the lives of everyone around me. So I was closeted until my junior year of college. And um, my junior year of college, I was going to a Catholic university. Um, I was playing basketball there. Our mascot, we were the Lady Monks, which in retrospect is (laughs) very queer and awesome. (laughs) I mean, so perfect. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Um, And so coming out in that environment, that was also a a big deal. But I I felt so thrilled uh, to finally be out. It was a struggle for my family for a while as it was we were all sort of learning and growing together. But uh, my friends welcomed me pretty quickly. And yeah, then it was years of learning and becoming after that. You've talked about finding joy in nature, joy in basketball, which I know you still love. (laughs) When do you discover the love and the joy of poetry? What's your origin story of your, you know, your life as a poet? Well, I studied creative writing in college, but I had severe stage fright. So I never, ever imagined I would be able to get on a microphone and read a poem. But then in 99, when I had moved to Colorado, I got broken up with, and my heart was crushed for the very first time. And something about feeling like you've lost everything, uh, you it makes you braver. And so um, with my heart broken, I got up on an open mic for the first time in my life, and I read a poem and the paper in my hand was louder than my voice because my hands were shaking uh, so badly, but I fell in love with it. And the next week I, I bust down to Denver to a poetry slam and discovered the art form of spoken word where essentially 
people aren't reading off paper commonly. They are have their poems memorized. Poems are longer. And there's just so much intimacy between the poet and the audience. And there's also a ton of energy and enthusiasm in the room. It's, it's not a quiet poetry room. It's a lot of active, uh, loud feedback in the middle of poems. And so it's a really exciting environment. And so I started uh, just attending poetry slams all the time. And then after a few years, I started getting invited to uh, different places in the in the country uh, to perform. And that's how my career as a poet started. And so much of your poetry, really for decades, was a lot of it was about pain and suffering in the world and your journey of with your mental health and anxiety and panic. What were those decades like living in that anxious and fearful state and body? Yeah, so ever since early childhood, along with like the joy of nature and sports, and those things were really a reprieve for me. But um, my whole life, I had very extreme anxiety that kind of just worsened over time uh, to pretty chronic panic attacks. And I mean, daily panic attacks, anything could cause a panic attack for me. And I also, you know, I don't know if people commonly speak about this, but through all of those years, I was struggling with suicidality because of the anxiety, because it was so debilitating. There were, you know, many years at a time that I was only leaving home to to work, to do a poetry show. And the anxiety was so bad that I, I commonly didn't want to live because of it, which is something that I don't always hear people talk about. We we very often talk about depression and, and suicide, but we don't always talk about terror, fear, panic, and anxiety and um, and suicide. But that was how I lived. I also had depression and and all of the different stuff. But I also had joy. And so I was trying to, you know, put it all into my poems. Writing about their experience with mental illness made it more tolerable because they could transform all of that suffering into art, something that could help other people. And when Andrea started sharing their poems on stage, it was a way for Andrea to confront and break through their extreme fear and anxiety over and over again. I think that, um, you know, for a lot of my shows, I was having panic attacks on stage. I was having actual anxiety attacks. And thankfully, you know, I thank my therapist for so much. But one of the things that she taught me was to stop hiding. Um, and I could take that back all the way to that first poem about the mask. And and I realized at that time that my, my trying to hide my anxiety on stage was really worsening it. And this really helped me. And I think anybody who has to do public speaking, I think this is great advice to my therapist said, just stop hiding it. And so what I would do is I would tell the audience I'm having a panic attack, or I'd say, I can't feel my hands or my heart is racing out of my chest. And my shows started to become this really just 
lovely supported space because I know a lot of people were coming to my shows with anxiety and even coming into a social gathering was really difficult for a lot of people. And so we were kind of all in it together. People knew that if they came, I might have a panic attack on stage and it never got less scary. I mean, until after my diagnosis, performing never got less scary to me. And I think that may have been my drive. You know, I've often wondered if it had stopped terrifying me, would I have stopped doing it? Um, I may have. And what what was the offering to share yourself raw and exposed over and over? What is the offering with the people in the room? Well, I think that with poetry or any kind of writing, um, you know, I think the biggest responsibility is to tell the truth. And so the poem itself, you know, you you come to poems, you come to writing, hoping to understand a new truth or somebody's truth. And so, but the words are only half of it, you know? And so I think just existing in not apologizing for being afraid or just owning my own uh, mental illness <laughs> publicly, um, you know, people could see my hand shaking. I think that that is an offering because the other thing I would do is, you know, I know we have this idea that you don't walk out of a venue in the middle of a, a really serious poem. And, and I would always give the audience permission to leave whenever they needed to, to do whatever they had to do to take care of themselves. And so I think that was it, us all learning together to kind of own who we are and love ourselves in spite of those things that the culture has taught us to be ashamed of. In addition to Andrea's struggles with mental health, around the age of 25, they started experiencing chronic physical pain on a daily basis. It was a topic they avoided sharing publicly in their writing because its origins were such a mystery and because Andrea was a self-described hypochondriac. I still had shame about my health and no doctor could figure out what was going on with me until 2010 when I finally got diagnosed with with chronic Lyme disease. So that was um, my life and also in regards to hypochondria. I mean, that started when I was very young. Um, I mean, I remember my mom used to make lists of of all the things I would say in a day that could kill me. And she would make lists of them so she could show them to me and and try to help me see that one person couldn't have this many things wrong in a day. So, but that carried all through adulthood where I was, I was a hypochondriac and then I was sick. And so that, what that did for my nervous system, because it was just all intermingling to create, yeah, like more mental health issues. And you talk about being afraid of so much, you know, Mm -hmm. what were some of the things that brought up, you know, intense fear specifically? What were some (laughs) of the things in the world? Because I think the list, you know, looking back on it now, I think you're in a place where it's entertaining. It is entertaining. And I think of like one, I mean, this isn't for everyone, but an amazing trauma therapy is humor. Like, I've written about this stuff with lots of humor, because it is so healing to me. And I know it's not everybody's jam. uh, But it works. Um, 
it works for me. So things that I was terrified of that would make no sense. I would stand beside a lake and start to uh, feel like my heart was going to fall out of my chest because I started to get paranoid about a tsunami, which that does not happen. <laughs> it does not happen around lakes. I, I wouldn't eat nuts on airplanes because I was afraid that I would suddenly develop a nut allergy when I was in the air. I would see a freckle um, on my leg and, and decide that it was new and just be in tears for the next two weeks. So I, I mean, even things, I, I remember when I was a kid, I didn't want to look at the sky because I was afraid I would see an asteroid come or, or, or a nuclear weapon coming for my house. So it was kind of everything. Where were you in your life when you receive your diagnosis and what led you to the diagnosis? Sure. So I had just spent most of the first year of the pandemic at home alone because I was very quarantined because of immune illness. And I was depressed. I, I was low and I got so low that I was really very rarely uh, even leaving my home. And I just didn't feel quite like myself. And I also was having really terrible panic attacks at the time. I mean, they were they were chronic. I had had a really bad panic attack while nobody was home. And then I developed a fear of being alone. And Sometime in the middle of that, near the end of the first year of the pandemic, I got a stomach ache. And I figured because I've had so much stomach stuff from chronic illness over the years, I, I just figured it was something like that, but it wasn't going away. And a couple of months into it and trying different medicines to treat it, my doctor finally sent me in for a CT scan. He was checking for diverticulitis, like this stomach infection. Um, and when I was in the scan machine, this is this of everything, for some reason, this is the hardest thing to feel back into it, emotionally. It's, it's sort of painful, but I was in the scan machine. And when I was in there, the technician's voice came over the speaker and he asked me to pull down my pants so that they could scan my pelvis. And I knew that my doctor hadn't ordered a scan of my pelvis. So I'm in this machine, which I'm already just very claustrophobic and afraid. And, and I, I'm terrified um, because I, I just knew. I knew it was cancer. And then um, the technician had to actually break protocol and it escort me out of the building. And I, I think I just sort of sobbed in his arms. And um, a couple days later, or maybe it was the next day, I was in my garden, I think, um, weeding my garden. And I got a call and my doctor called and said that they had found a number of very large masses on my ovaries. They couldn't say that it was cancerous at that point. And I remember just falling uh, to the ground and I could feel like I, I couldn't feel my hands. It was like they'd gone numb from trying to hold every one I loved all at once. How soon after the diagnosis did your experience of, of yourself start to shift for you? 
so after that moment, something already shifted a little bit because when I picked up the phone to call my folks, or maybe I called my sister first, I'm not sure, but I could start to feel at that moment that I was that I was starting to feel more love than I had ever felt. Um, and then uh, it wasn't long later, I went in for my surgery to diagnose whether or not it was cancer. And I woke up from surgery and my partner, Meg, was sitting there with my mom. And she was the one who told me what I had. And she did it in such a way that it just only she would know how to tell me in a way that would be beautiful. And... um can you share what, what she said, if you're comfortable? You know what? It was, I, I don't even quite know how to explain it other than like her eyes were looking at me with this very big smile. And she was just saying, baby, it's cancer. It's stage 2B. We feel so positive about it being stage 2B. Like, you're going to beat this. We're going to get this. You're amazing. The surgery went incredible. You are so loved. Everybody is out in the waiting room just rooting for you. And uh, I was just talking to my Lyme doctor, who was my doctor for many years and has become my friend over the years. And um, we were talking the other day because he visited me that night. And he said that um, he had never seen anything <laughs> like, like what was happening where I could not stop talking about love. I was more in love with Meg than I had ever been, where I maybe just a few days prior would have criticized my, my father over something. Like I, I just kept looking at him thinking, has anybody ever had a better father? I, I noticed that just something was so different in me and I describe it and it's hard to explain, but it was almost as if my needing was gone. My wanting was gone. I no longer felt like I was in the world to get something. I felt like I was in the world to give and I couldn't stop yeah, complimenting the nurses. And I just felt like I was seeing the world for the first time. And I was almost in a state of bliss, and that state was pretty consistent, well, for most of these last two years, but the first year I hardly ever left that state of just, I was almost like my jaw was always dropped, looking at the planet as if it was a planet I had never been on before, um, and I could not believe that we all get to live here and be here and have these bodies. It was just, I mean, it would, I, I was crying, like, <laughs> five times a day and I would have to tell Meg each time I did I said I'm I'm, not, I'm crying because of love I'm crying because of love not pain so the world suddenly appears breathtakingly beautiful all of it and pure and you know what does it feel like to live in eternal bliss I think we're all so far from that right we're not. And I think, <laughs> I think that's the thing. And when I say we're not, what I mean is the thing that I could not believe was how simple it was. And I think that we have this idea, especially, I think it can also be even more of a challenge for, for people who are on some sort of spiritual path, because you're thinking, okay, I got to get there. And it's such a long journey and years and years and years, and maybe maybe I'll start to be present in this life. But I think the thing that I've realized, which I, I'm as a writer, just keep trying to find language for, and I still haven't found it, but it is just there. It is so 
so simple that I think we miss it because of its simplicity. And how does it feel? I mean, for the first time in my life, I, I felt a divine love for myself. I felt cherished by the universe, source, God, create, <laughs> creation, whatever, whatever you want to call it. I felt cherished. I knew every living being had to have been cherished, to have been made. I think one of the really key things that happened for me was I had trauma in my history. And trauma sort of undoes our our natural state of knowing we are cherished and, and being love ourselves. And so as soon as I felt this sort of divine love of the universe, it almost was like it wiped away my trauma. And I didn't feel in resistance to life. I stopped really caring about what was happening on the outside of who I am. And when I say on the outside of who I am, I also mean like the cancer is on the outside of who I am. My body in many ways is on the outside of who I am. But circumstances of life didn't, didn't bowl me over anymore. And the biggest thing I think that changed was... I, I kind of woke up from that surgery and my fear was gone. And, you know, you describe it and certainly would, would make sense as you've described your work and, and your art, that you understood yourself to be a person who was a deeply feeling person who felt all their feelings. And you come to this realization that you had, in fact not been feeling all the feelings. And can you explain that to me? Because I, I think a lot of people will relate to that, um, the unveiling of that truth for you. Yeah, so I had, um, I have an incredible therapist and I started seeing her when I was in my 20s and she had taught me how to welcome my feelings. And so I was in a practice all those years of welcoming my feelings, um, even saying, hey, you're welcome here. You can be even bigger than you are if you need to be, because often our resistance to the emotion is what makes it worse. And she had told me like, you know, you can't shut yourself off to grief without also shutting yourself off to joy. She said to think of it like a kink in a hose. You stop the flow of sadness. Uh, you stop the flow of happiness at the same time. So I welcomed my feelings because I wanted to be happy. But one of the things that I realized after cancer was that there was one feeling that I was consistently pushing away or more than one. And, and I said joy. Initially, joy was the one that I realized that I had been pushing away. But I was also pushing away awe. I was pushing away astonishment. And I think that many of us, if we have trauma in our history, we we don't feel safe with those emotions. But also, I think that there are some things um, in our culture, and maybe even specifically in our culture for those of us on the left, whatever that means, of where there can be an expectation for unhappiness. Um, the idea that, you know, if we're not in a constant state of grief or grieving what's happening in the world, then we're not empathetic people. We're not showing up to the world. I think there were lots of things intersecting with my lack of understanding that I wasn't actually welcoming joy. But after cancer, I, I saw that. I saw it so clearly. And I learned that that joy and that awe and astonishment is 
is so accessible, is so accessible to me. And there were many ways I was just actively pushing it and pushing it away. Coming up, Andrea shares their experience of starting chemotherapy and the one thing they did that made the biggest difference in tolerating it. That and more after a quick break. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. Andrea chose everytown.org. Everytown is the largest gun violence prevention organization in America. They are 10 million strong, a group of mayors, moms, teachers, gun owners, survivors, students, and everyday Americans coming together to make our community safer. They use evidence-based solutions in every town with the goal of ending gun violence in our country. To learn more, go to everytown.org or follow them on Instagram at everytown. So you start chemotherapy and also pursuing all of these other healing modalities. And if you can touch on the process of chemotherapy and, and what that means for you and, um, you know, what you're actively were pursuing to heal. Yeah, so I had a, a naturopathic oncologist tell me that if I lifted weights, um, really heavy weights, <laughs> then it would make chemotherapy a lot better. And if I exercised through chemotherapy, um, there was like, a, you know, something like the statistics are you have a 90% better chance of, of tolerating it. And I, I was like, this, no way, like no way. But I thought I'm going to do it. I started chemo and my friends would come over and when I would wake up on those those first days after chemo and I would feel like there was an elephant sitting on my chest like I described the feeling of what it felt like in those first couple of days after chemo it almost felt like drinking cyanide while being struck by lightning it was just you just feel icky but my friends would come over I would be in face down in bed and they would just say, get up, get up. And they would put weights into my hands and I would do a few reps and then I would collapse on the bed and then a few more reps and collapse on the bed. But five or 10 minutes into it, the elephant would lift off my chest. I, I could not believe how much it was helping me. So at this point, I've been doing chemo pretty much constantly for the last two years. And People talk about it as if it must be awful, and it hasn't been. And I think that a lot of those things that I have been doing have have really supported my body. And I don't want to suggest they'd support everyone. So, I mean, I I have friends who who have cancer right now and aren't able to exercise, and so I, I don't want anybody ever shaming themselves about that. And I just lost my cousin to cancer, and she was just simply too sick. So it's it's not an option for everyone, but if it is an option for you and you're listening, like it really, really helped me. So much so that I would say that these last two years, as I've been in constant chemotherapy for a very aggressive form of ovarian cancer, I have felt healthier in these last two years than I have since I was in my teens. 
And what are some of the other healing modalities that you attribute to to that? I'm doing lots of stuff. Like I'm doing, uh, you know, and diet is a sensitive thing for people to talk about, but I'm also doing a very specific cancer diet, and uh, which I won't go into the details of because a different one is going to work for everybody. And the one I'm on, honestly, is just so unpleasant. <laughs> like if I drink another broccoli smoothie, I'm just, I, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. But the food that I was eating, specifically not taking in sugar, um, really, really has supported my body. I've also done a number of really far out things um, that aren't even legal in the US. Like I did a fever treatment in Canada where you go into a chamber and they induce a fever of 104 degrees and you're in there for five hours. It's one of the most miserable things I've ever done in my life. But I'll tell you afterwards, I, I felt like a superhero. I could not believe I had done that. I was I was so proud of myself. And then I, I went back and did it again. But there's a lot of alternative stuff I've been doing. And, and I share that only because every time I do a podcast, lots of people write to suggest something that I could do. And I, I think I'm probably doing just about anything a person could do at this point. Yeah. I think people have that tendency. You see it over and over again, right? When somebody's suffering, people want well-intended, I think, right, to offer suggestions or solutions. Um, of course. When in fact, yes, the reality is obviously that people are, are, we're all so unique and specific, right, to what. So I want to go back a little bit more with your first round of chemo and, you know, being in remission. So you've talked about the bliss and your physical health and vitality, Really, it sounds like flourishing and certainly your emotional health. What are some some of the harder moments where the the fear and the grief and the uncertainty creep in? Yeah, so thanks for asking that question because I feel like I've almost been like a one-sided character through this time because I used to have so many emotions that I was writing through and it's been really hard for people to understand you know, I know even some of my close friends are have you know heard me online and said, "Are you being toxically positive?" Or and I'm like, "No, that's it's it's really not what's happening." Like if I were having grief or sadness or fear all of the time, I would a hundred percent be sharing it. I think the most important thing for me to be doing right now is to just sh- share the truth of my experience. So the times have been rare when you considering like what this diagnosis is. Um, But I would say one of the first moments where I noticed shame coming up in me was when I found out that I was having a recurrence. Andrea's cancer had metastasized and was now in their liver and diaphragm. The recurrence meant enduring another surgery and six more rounds of chemotherapy. And because not everyone knows this, I'll share. When you finish chemotherapy, in the chemo room is a golden bell and you get to ring it and everybody in the room just claps and cheers and and, and celebrates for you. It's a really, the chemo room is a, gosh, I mean, I've written so much about it at this point, but it's such a tender, emotional place. So when I had that celebration after my first round and, and really hoping that I was done, um, even though I knew what the cancer was and I, I knew that it was very likely to come right back. When the cancer did come back, walking back into the chemo room, I remember that being one of 
the first moments of shame that I had felt in a year. And I walked back in because I had just celebrated. And, and when you're navigating an illness, it can be so easy to think that you did something wrong or not enough or, you know, sort of blame yourself for being sick again. But I remember walking in with my head like sort of slumped down. And I, I usually... I ice my hands when I'm doing chemotherapy so I don't get neuropathy in my hands. And that would be like many hours in a day of icing them. And the first rounds, my partner would have to just constantly be throwing the ice on my hands because I keep ripping the ice off because I wanted to write. Like I just wanted to write so bad. And she'd say, is this worth losing a finger over? And I'd say, yes, it is. (laughs) But the second time when we went in, I just sat there. And, you know, I know it broke her heart because I just had no interest in writing or saying anything. And, you know, it was hard for her to be in there too. And I was in there for, my treatments were like seven hours long. And I thought, how, how am I going to do this again? Like, how? And I just was really heartbroken until at the end of the day, And this woman in the chair in the corner, she stood up and rang the golden bell. And it was the end of her treatment. And it was like my body dissolved into hers. And I could feel, which was something that I had, was another thing that had happened throughout the first year where I just, I suddenly understood the bumper sticker, we were all one. Like I really could feel that we were all different blooms on the same plant. And then when this woman rang the bell, there I was again ringing the bell. And I could feel her joy as my joy. I could feel her relief as my relief. And and that brought me back. And so after that moment, I was I was good again. <laughs> and um and then there were some moments in the future that I could, I could, get, in, I could get into those, too, um, because the cancer came back again. At this point, Andrea's had a hysterectomy and six rounds of chemo. Then the cancer returned to their diaphragm and liver, which meant another six rounds of chemo. Then four months later, it returned again throughout their torso with a large tumor on their liver. At that point, Andrea knew that it meant the cancer was going to be classified as incurable. And they knew the doctor was going to say that there wasn't much that could be done. And that's what she said. She said, the cancer is considered incurable at this point. You no longer really qualify for any of these chemo treatments Um there are some new things that you could coming out of trials or are in trials that you could try or, you know, you, you don't have to do anything. You could just live out the rest of your life and, and enjoy yourself. Um, I remember that being one of the hardest things I'd ever heard of. You can just live out the rest of your life. There was something about that phrase, but something happened in there for me because I realized, and in that office, I realized that it was the first time that I knew my health was in my hands. And it always had been. I just, it was how I was framing the story. So I think I would have chosen all the same treatments prior because they had kept me alive for two years. But I never empowered myself to say, I am making this decision. And so as soon as she said, basically, there's not a whole lot we can do for you, I almost felt like I had my life back in my, like I had I had taken my power back in a way. 
But afterwards, the treatment that she offered me that had just come out of trials, it was one of the first advancements that had happened in ovarian cancer in decades. And I did not want to do the top one on the list because the main symptom that is really debilitating to people is they lose a lot of their vision. My doctor described it like completely fogging up a pair of glasses um, and looking through that, but she said it varied for people. So for a few months, I think I opted not to do any treatment. And, and then I had a day of checking myself, uh, basically checking my own ableism, because I know there are millions, like so many people in our planet, who are blind or their vision isn't great, who live amazing lives. And one of the things that I had done since the beginning of my diagnosis was say, I can, I can make something beautiful out of this. Like I wrote about it once and said, what kind of poet would I be if I could only make hard things beautiful on paper? So I decided that I was going to do the treatment it's a sort of chemo, but it's not quite, which is why I keep my hair. And I, I decided to do it. And I've been doing that treatment. It only had a 30% chance of doing having any response in my body. And I just found out, I don't know, like I just found out a few weeks ago that my cancer marker is currently lower than it has ever been since I began treatment. And the first, oh, and you're asking about, I know this is a long tangent, uh, but you were asking about um, other hard moments. And the first round was very hard for me. It was very hard for me because I couldn't see to write. And I had figured that I could make peace with just about everything, but I hadn't considered that I wouldn't be able to see to write. Uh, the words just wouldn't come into focus on my computer. And I thought that was how it was going to be. And I started to, my, my heart sunk. I mean, I was in so much despair um, for several days until Meg encouraged me to do things that didn't require my eyes. So I, I started working on a podcast. Well, I've been working on this podcast for almost a year now, but I started, I got more active on the podcast I'm hoping to launch. And I started writing songs. And then the next round, my vision was way better. And since then, my vision has been way better. I've been working closely with an optometrist. Wow. I didn't know, I didn't know that piece of it. Um, you've talked about how it's changed your relationship with your body and the shame you once felt around your body and not, not looking well. You said, you, you know, mm -hmm. this idea of being unhealthy or not looking healthy and then you find yourself in chemo, you know, bald with no eyelashes or losing all the hair on your body. And the shame you once felt, will, will you tell me? Tell me about how it changed your relationship with your body and shame around your body. There was, I mean, in almost every way somebody could have shame about their body, I did. I had shame about how I looked because people were constantly commenting on me not looking, not looking well. Like, and I didn't. I, I looked sick for uh, for many years. I had shame attached to my my gender. I had shame just about being sick. I had shame about having panic attacks, and so all of this stuff with my diagnosis. Did it disappear? I would say 97% um, disappeared. Like I could not believe, I remember I woke up from surgery 
And I had been so grateful for pandemic masks. That was the kind of shame that I was carrying around aging. And I remember touching my face and just feeling like, oh my goodness, I have the softest face in the world. And then uh, looking in the mirror, I mean, even when I looked my worst, when I had no eyebrows, when I had no eyelashes, and just I, I looked like a ghost, and people were stopping me on the street to pray for me. That's how probably bad I looked to the culture. I just, I loved that I had a body. And I loved that I had a body that I was caring for. And I did not care how my body looked. I'm like, I'll, I'll take anybody. I'll take anybody <laughs> in this planet. But I, I also wanted mine. You know, I, I wanted my body. I wanted my life. Um, I didn't want somebody else's lifespan even. I, I wanted what was for me. And I, I just suddenly was presence to this knowing that this body of mine was such a gift and and that I got to walk around this world with this body and and just shame couldn't touch me in that way anymore. And regards to gender too, I'm non-binary and I had had like a lot of hangups in myself about, you know, if somebody commented on anything, if they said I had a feminine face, I remember just, ah, oh, I would come out of my skin with a comment like that. And since my diagnosis, um, I just, I mean, I, I, I feel so comfortable in whatever, I mean, somebody could throw a dress on me and right now and I'd feel, I'd feel comfortable. I, it's really difficult to explain and it's a sensitive thing to talk about because I never want anybody else to feel like, or, or anybody who, for example, is struggling to be celebratory of non-binary or, or trans people to have this expectation of anybody else. But none of that hits my, my pain body anymore. It just sort of works its way through me and I, I don't, it kind of just doesn't touch me. You talk a lot about not living in the future, any future experience or, or the future of dying, but living now and a deeply present now. And Part of your presence, your everyday presence, is Meg, mm -hmm. your fiance Meg. Yeah. Tell me about Meg. <laughs> Meg is, well, she's no longer a poet, I guess. She's writing prose these days. But we met in the poetry community, and uh, we were friends. We were friends for quite a while before. And so we had so much in common in regards to our humor in many ways, being a lot younger than we are and what, like, in what we have fun doing, like putting on living room concerts for our dogs, making up dance routines, singing karaoke, just being really, really fun with each other. And after cancer, even much more fun. But we were struggling in the, in the pandemic year uh, leading up to my diagnosis. And I, I don't know if we knew if we were going to stay together. We were both in the house together and we were having a hard time. But then clarity just hit us. And, you know, my therapist has often talked about this thing where she doesn't believe that time helps us see each other more clearly. She thinks the opposite is true. She thinks that when we meet someone, we are seeing their most divine selves. They are seeing us at our best. And in those moments when we are seeing each other at 
our best. She says, that is what's true. And then over time, we start to bury each other in our projections until we can't we can't even see them anymore. It's like, um, you know, that the the idea of you're dead to me. I think it's because we many times, you know, unless somebody's done something horrible, you're burying each other in in your own wounds, and that was definitely what we were doing. And then it just, I mean, to try to think of what changed, what changed after. I mean, I think one of the things was I realized that to ever assume I knew who Meg was, was to not be living in the present moment. And I, I started engaging her like she was a mystery. And I, I once heard that our greatest desire is to be known. But I think one of the best ways that we can know someone is to unknow them, to let them be a mystery each day. And what that does for us as individuals is then we get to actually be new in the moment. And the wild thing is, the less you expect somebody to be, to have a toxic pattern they had in the past, the more they show up as a new version of themselves. And so we were both like just learning and growing together. And these two years have just, they've been so tender and so loving. Having a deep connection with the divine has been another big part of Andrea's experience over the past couple of years. But it wasn't always that way. In Andrea's younger years, they turned away from God and the church after a couple of painful and disappointing experiences. But they always missed having a spiritual life. Like I missed God. I missed feeling like the universe had my back, you know? And that was always a void in my life. So when I got diagnosed with cancer and I was having these experiences, which I would say were of presence, of being in the moment, I recognized that I just started using the word God, which was strange for me because I had read a lot of Buddhist, you can't live outside of Boulder, Colorado and not be exposed to lots of Buddhist people and a lot of Buddhist writing. And I had come to that a lot trying to see if it would help soothe my anxiety. But after my diagnosis, I suddenly started using the word God because what I was experiencing was just this sense of cherishing. And I don't obviously mean like a, a man sitting on a cloud in the sky. I mean our own consciousness. I mean the love that connects us all. I mean the divine source of this well of just a love and joy and peace that I believe is our natural state. And I don't think that we have to go pull it from elsewhere. I think it is running through us at all times. And the thing to do is to just learn some skills, and they'll be different for everyone, to take down the walls between us and our sense of peace, our sense of being loved, and our sense of knowing that there is something bigger than us and there is not something bigger than us. If <laughs> It's hard to explain because bigger than us suggests that we are not that, that essence, that part of that essence that is big. And so just understanding this, I, I don't know, sort of just like catching the wave of the universe instead of fighting against it. And that's a lot of what I've done is not be in resistance to the facts of my life. Where are you in your relationship with mortality and, and your relationship with death? I love this question, and I just appreciate anybody asking it. 
So my Lyme doctor, who is my friend, who we were, we were talking the other day, and he called me up and he's like, hey, do you want to have a conversation about death? And I said, yeah, yeah, like I really do. Because, you know, when my friends ask what would be most comforting right now, and I think the thing that would be most comforting is if when we sat down to talk, I I also got to ask them, so how are you engaging your mortality today? Because one of the funny things that I'm encountering is I feel like I'm walking through the world many days as if I'm the only one that could die soon. And I just am newly awake to that not being true, that we're all going to leave this world. And I think the fact that we are all going to leave, well, we're going to leave our bodies, and that we're all going to die one day is the seed of so much of my joy. That brevity is creating creating an active longing within me to never take my life for granted, but it also opens up this sense of mystery, this wow, this wow that I could at any moment now just just not be in form, just be in energy. And so I've been actively working throughout this whole time to create a loving relationship with my mortality. You know, you speak about the unspeakably beautiful and one of the pieces that I hear in listening to your interviews that feels hard is not your own grief, but your thoughts about the grief of the people who love you when you go, whether that's two months or 20 years. So how do you think about, you're so close, it sounds like, to your sister and your parents, to Meg, and and you have so many close friends. So what does that emotion, what is your experience around that, your, your grief and fear for them? So it's changed quite a bit. And at various, you know, podcasts or interviews I've, I've spoken about, and I've been in different places, but I immediately, almost with my diagnosis, I, I could single out like six people in my life that I was very worried about, that I thought, I don't know, I don't know how they'll do with this. And I don't want to just assume that I'll go before they do at this point, but it would knock, it would just knock me over. And it was one thing that I kept having consistent resistance to. And I didn't know how to surrender because I had figured out how to surrender and not have resistance to what was happening to me. I mean, not even have resistance to death or the idea of dying throughout a lot of it. But I was just overwhelmed in moments with just grief for the grief of those that I would leave behind. That has since changed for me. And I I did a lot of work (laughs) uh, to get to that point. And I realized that I, in the way that I have to trust my journey, you know, I read this thing once that said, um, or one thing was in a near-death experience that somebody was talking about how they were told that they were chosen, they chose the hardships they would experience in this life before they were born. And true or not, I love relating to my challenges that way. Like I love thinking I chose these so that my spirit could evolve. And I just have to have faith in the journey, the soul's journey of everybody that I love. So that pain that I used to have is no longer something that, I mean, 
yes, it finds me in moments. Like I'll, you know, Meg and I will be walking through a grocery store and I'm allergic to almonds. And because my vision isn't good right now, she, she like reads all the labels on everything to make sure there aren't almonds in it. And I'll just see her looking for almonds. And, and I know if I were to die, she would still be looking for almonds. <sighs> and, um, and so moments like that can like really catch my heart. But I also know that I'm not serving myself by carrying around that grief. And I'm also not honoring the resilience, the strength, and the spirit of the people who love me and that their lives are beautiful lives worth living. They have learning and growing to do. And every loss in my life has come with a gain. And so I can almost already see what those gains would be. Like I can see like the opening of people's hearts. I could see my loved ones falling into each other's arms and loving each better. And I don't want to manifest my own death by just, because I still also live in a realm of, I have no idea. Like I'm not sitting here thinking I'm definitely dying soon because I don't know. That is, that is one narrative in Western medicine. And even if it's a 1% chance, there's still a 1% chance. So I don't, I don't want to say I know I'm definitely dying, but yeah. Thank you for that. Um, you know, you, you open talking about what brought you joy as a young person and nature and basketball early in your life. Yeah. I, I want to know what brings you joy now. I feel like the list is long and it also <laughs> involves Beyonce and dancing. <laughs> so what yeah. is bringing you joy? I mean, dancing definitely. And you know, as I've, I've told this story, like the night that they told us that the cancer was incurable, I mean, everybody in our close community was just devastated. Meg and I were too, but I turn up on the music late at night and we just started dancing and we, we must've danced for hours. Like we were dripping in sweat and we were so happy. And I just kept saying to Meg, I cannot believe this. Like, I cannot believe this is possible that we are dancing like this right now. And, and we do it all the time. So we're constantly, we're constantly dancing. I have a basketball hoop in my driveway. I play basketball like three different times, <laughs> three times a day at, at least. Um, my puppy is like, and things that never really like brought me joy in the same way, at least before, like it's being outside. Like I, I spend so much time in nature, you know, I'll, I'll spend a couple hours like just sitting in my yard, watching a squirrel build her nest on the top of a tree. I have a squirrel friend. I <laughs> like just, you know, the, there are bunnies that hop all over our, our yard. I mean, it's not even what brings me joy as much as, as there's just a joy inside me that I'm, I'm not really closing down. And, um, and so pretty much anything can. You know, it, it dawns on me and it's not lost on me that we are all living <laughs> with no idea how much time we have, whether it's weeks or months or decades. So we're all in it together, right? Mm -hmm. Our mortality and, and our death is certain. You are just acutely aware. And so many of us are not. We're sort of in the day-to-day -day reality, sometimes in a fog, sometimes mundane. 
And, and you may not have the answer, but how can we tap in to the magic of it all? This gift that you have been given that, as you said, you know, I, I said it's so far out of reach and you said it's not, it's close. So mm-hmm. do you have anything to tell me, to tell everyone listening about how we can get closer to that joy, to that divinity and, and bliss that you're experiencing? Yeah, so I've really been trying to write out what concrete things are helping me as a guide to, well, when I'm not there, uh, getting back there myself, when getting back to an open heart. And at this point, I call it my keychain. Like, I've made a list of everything that opens my heart. And sometimes I could go through the list and 25 of the things won't work and one of them will. And I think that if people go into a a practice of just trying to pay attention, what opens your heart? And I can share a few of mine. Um, Some of the things on my keys, (laughs) on my keychain, always helps me to have a metaphor. Um, So one of the things I do is I actively will focus on what I'm here to give instead of what I'm here to get. And I think a lot of people will hear that and say, well, I'm not somebody that is focused on what I can get. I like to give. It's not really how I mean, because I didn't think of myself as somebody that was in the world trying to get things, but there were ways like maybe approval, um, respect, um, attention, like anything like that. I think um, my shift of attention in that way, what am I here to give? The other thing that I do is I've really learned the difference between saying, I forgive you life and I thank you life. Like when I stopped saying I forgive you life for the hard things and I started saying I thank you life, it transformed um, everything. Another one of the keys for me is to be impeccably authentic. And that means not hiding any part of who I am. It means telling the truth as well as I can tell it um, in each moment. Another thing on my list that helps me get to that place is to seek out fear. I think that we don't know that we're a culture that is chronically trying to go in the other direction away from fear. That that helps me. I have so uh, many lists. And, and another one um, is to just touch into the knowing that pain is not my protector. Well, we are a show about wisdom. And so those are incredibly wise words. So thank you for sharing your keys. Yeah. Thank you so much. If you'd like to connect with Andrea, you can find them on Instagram at Andrea Gibson, as well as through their newsletter called Things That Don't Suck, which we will link to in the show notes. Also, if you are a member, we will be sharing some bonus content of Andrea reading one of their poems. So be on the lookout for that. And of course, if you are interested in becoming a member, we'd love to have you join our All The Wiser community. All the details can be found on our website, allthewiserpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for A Little Wiser, where we will discuss the many, many beautiful words and sentiments expressed in this episode. All the Wiser is produced by me, Erica Gerard from Podkit Productions. I'm John LaSala, the editor and composer and sound designer. 
This is associate producer Tara Daigle. And I'm Kimmy Colt. Until next time, take care of yourself and one another. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.